This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So welcome. Tonight's topic is real wealth. And I wanted to start with a story that is um, from the commentaries about a um, person who appears in the teachings fairly often, whose name is Anattapindika. And there's quite a bit about him in the suttas themselves, but this particular story comes from the commentaries. So Anattapindika was a lay practitioner and a follower of the Buddha. And he was one of the wealthiest donors to the Sangha um, in Savati. And there was a time, you know, he would often have the monks for meals and his name even means um, one who gives to the destitute. But it happened that there was a time when he had spent um, three-fifths of his accumulated wealth to build a monastery for the Buddha and his followers. And then one-fifth uh, got washed away into the sea, and the other fifth uh, he had lent out to people and they didn't pay him back. So he became very poor, sort of suddenly. Um, and it said, though, that he still served the monks meals, but they were only thin rice gruel. It was all that he had. So he um, found a way to give nonetheless. So we know, of course, that material wealth is unreliable. You know, we all know this in kind of an intellectual sense. It can be hard to get, it can be easy to lose, and it's subject to all kinds of forces over which we don't have complete control. And of course, many spiritual traditions uh, remind people of this fact about material wealth. Um, and many will also talk about various kinds of inner wealth that are not only more reliable, but also inherently more valuable. And the Buddha, too, uh, talked quite a bit about this topic. So today, we're going to look at a particular sutta teaching where um, he talks about this, and it has some interesting and relevant dimensions for our world today. So Anattapindika's wealth was washed away and taken by others, and as well as he spent some of it. But the Buddha actually defined ways by which our wealth is lost. And there's an interesting list. He says, fire, flood, kings, thieves, and jealous heirs. <laughs> so these are all the ways that we might lose what we've gathered. And maybe in the modern world, we could add something like global, global pandemic and maybe a few other qualities that, that affect our, our material wealth. So I think you know now more than ever, we, we still need this teaching. So there's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya that is simply entitled Wealth. 
And it gives five qualities that the Buddha says constitute this real wealth or true wealth um, that is more reliable. And they are confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. And another sutta on these same five, these five appear in a number of suttas. Uh, another sutta about them calls them fortifications for the mind. You know, if we have these things, our mind is fortified. And in particular, in the context of the sutta, it's um, fortified for the time of death. You know, is that these are qualities that will um, be present for us and helpful at our time of death. So I want to look at each of these. And we'll see how they're defined in this particular sutta in the Buddhist teachings, and also how they can serve um, both the individual and society, because all of them uh, have these qualities also, these helpful, beneficial qualities. So we'll start with confidence, um, which in the version I have is actually translated as faith, which I know is sometimes a fraught word for people, so I, I often will use a different one, but it's mostly that the Pali word, uh, sata, it doesn't really capture, isn't really captured by one English word. You know, it can be confidence, it can be faith, it can be trust, it can be conviction. There's a lot of different ones uh, that are kind of meant by that word in Pali, so you can kind of choose if you want. So let me just read. And what is the wealth of faith? Here, a noble disciple is endowed with faith. They place faith in the enlightenment of the Tathagata thus. The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. This is called the wealth of faith. So at first glance, it sounds um, rather, it might sound somewhat uh, religious, but interestingly, the look carefully at the language. It says, this person places faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Tathagata is the Buddha. They place faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha. And then there are um, a bunch of phrases which may be inspiring or, or may not land for you, I'm not sure. Um, so it's not that this is a blind devotion to a religious figure, but instead it's um, somehow an acceptance of the awakening, that awakening is possible, that this is a, something that can happen for humans, or that there was a person who did this, who somehow elevated their mind and heart in this way and became a teacher, became a spiritual teacher whose teachings have lasted until now. So there's um, maybe if we could stretch our mind a bit and just um, generalize or, or uh, take the concept, the spirit of what's meant here, it could be sort of a sincere acknowledgement of higher possibilities for people. Um, it's the very opposite of cynicism or sarcasm or other ways that we diminish our own or other people's potential so we recognize in a sense that there are things that are lofty. There's another, I say that specifically because there's another sutta where the Buddha says, um, 
he's talking with some people and they're, they're asking him why he says certain things uh, about people, like where they've been reborn specifically. But his explanation to this, these people is, well, I say these things because there are beings who are inspired by things that are lofty. And so you know, he explains, this is why I talk about the spiritual qualities of other people. So there are people, there are beings that are inspired by things that are lofty. I kind of like that phrasing. We need this in the world today. We need some sense that um, there are things that are lofty. Every one of us here that just completed a half hour of meditation, that was a great thing to do with your mind. It doesn't matter if you thought the whole time. I'm sure many of us did. Um, still, it's something that's an excellent way to spend our time. We know that we're doing something valuable here. And so just sort of having that sense, that was why I invoked that at the beginning of the meditation, that can be um, a very valuable quality to be cultivating in your mind and to be in whatever way putting out into the world through your, just through your speech and actions and the way that you are with other people. So the quality of confidence or faith in, in something higher or, or deeper, pick your direction, is really valuable. It's a true kind of wealth that adds to the world without taking away from anyone's, anyone else's wealth. And then we have the second quality of, of virtue. So let me read that one. Here, a noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, abstains from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. So that's, many of you will recognize those actions. Those are the actions that are uh, suggested in the five precepts. Um, and they're all things that we're abstaining from in this case. So it's actually simply a matter of not doing. We're actually adding to the world by not doing certain things. Um, we can see immediately you know, what a benefit it is. Um, imagine a world where even one of these precepts was followed completely. Even if the other four were still, you know, the state that they're in now, if one of them though, were completely fulfilled, it would be a transformed world. So each one of these is quite valuable. Ethical conduct immediately protects other beings. Obviously, most of these qualities are relational, but it also protects us in the sense that it brings what's called in the teachings, the bliss of blamelessness. So it's, um, and, you know, we may not feel ourselves to be completely blameless and deserving of that kind of bliss. But uh, again, we can take the spirit that, you know, we know that generally uh, our mind and heart are aimed in a good direction. And that um, for the most part, many of us have little to regret about, say, the actions you did today. Probably didn't kill anyone today. You know, these kinds of things. So I, I think if we bring it to a, a very human level. Um, virtue is a condition for contentment, for happiness, for non-regret, for feeling okay about how we got through the day. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, it's a happiness that endures even when conditions change. You know, if tomorrow some of our wealth were to vanish, uh, we could still 
refrain from taking what's not given, refrain from speaking falsely. This is something that endures even when conditions go up and down in our lives. And we need people who are genuinely positive right now, not the kind of fake positive of denial or of putting on a happy face when things aren't that happy, but the, the genuine positivity of knowing that there is goodness and that we're partaking of that through our actions as well as we can, as well as we can, that's our intention. So ethics can do this. It brings this genuine kind of well-being and that can't help but benefit others. And then we have the quality also of generosity. So it says, here, a noble disciple dwells at home with a heart devoid of the stain of miserliness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. So again, I'll point to the spirit of this. It's not that we need to feel like we are the ideal, always generous, always open-handed. Of course, you know, the heart opens and closes, we have certain abilities to give in other ways where it's hard. But the spirit of it is that, um, is that we want to help in some way, we want to offer. And it's so needed at this time, because this is a time, especially when there's a, a, a time, feels like a time of scarcity or loss or anxiety or concern. Uh, there's a little, there's some tendency, a, a clear psychological tendency to hold on and to withdraw and to be cautious uh, when actually the opposite movement is what's beneficial. So this can remind us that generosity helps us to give even when we feel like we don't have so much. Uh, think about Anatapindika, you know, who lost suddenly a large amount of his wealth, um, but he just plowed on. Oh, I always have the monks over. Well, I'll have them over again today. And what we have is thin rice gruel. So um, that's what I've got to share. And this was a huge amount of merit for him, of course, to, to offer. It's uh, even said that if we give from a, a small amount, we just give a small amount out of the small amount that we have, that is more virtuous than somebody very, very wealthy making maybe even a bigger offer that, that really wasn't anything to them. So there's you know, this quality of, um, of, of offering when we can and what we can, you know, of course, always within what feels wise to us, what feels possible. So again, this quality is so beneficial for the world right now. Um, if what other time can we stand together and decide to share and give and help each other in a time like this. And then we have the quality of wisdom, another form of wealth. And it's quite simple, actually, maybe even surprising compared to the others. It says here, a noble disciple is wise. They possess the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. Huh. So it doesn't say they're wise. They have a good intuition about people or, you know, they know something about, you know, what other things that would be irrelevant here. But instead, it focuses on uh, seeing, arising and passing. <laughs> why is that? Um, why is that there? Well, Buddhist texts often equate wisdom with seeing impermanence. 
Um, and for our purposes now, we can point out in a very practical sense that uh, people who pay attention in their lives to the way so many things in life arise and change and pass, um, such folks are more likely to be able to handle surprises and shocks like we may have had some of in the last seven months. Maybe we're all getting jaded on it now and we all think it's fine, but I think that probably it's fair to guess that every one of us has seen some changes in our lives uh, since shelter in place began, since uh, various kinds of uh, social justice movements have begun and other kinds of things going on in the world. Um, you know, we've had some surprises, some shocks, some changes, some meetings to reflect. So people who have a sense of the flow of life, of the fact that things come, they go, they shift, they change, they're not that controllable, um, those people are going to be calmer during shifts like this. And that has a huge effect on the world, you know, than uh, getting panicked or getting anxious, which we may have had our moments of. I'm not saying we have to be perfect in this regard, but the cultivation of the wisdom around understanding change, understanding um, that nothing endures, and of course, the flip side, that there's new possibilities coming, all of that is tremendously beneficial for the world, even in the most mundane sense of just knowing that things change in life. And of course, what's pointed to here is maybe even more profound. It says the wisdom that's noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So that would be the, the type of change that the Buddha was pointing to, the impermanence of us. Uh, very basic sense experience coming and going all the time, the impermanence of the five aggregates and our inability to control elements of our identity. These teachings are not well known. It's okay, but I just want to mention that in this context here, the Buddha is pointing towards something quite profound that would you know, allow the mind even to let go of the deepest kinds of attachments that we have. So in fact, these four, these first four, I know there are five, um, but these first four are named as qualities that help a person to, in the particular sutta I'm thinking of, gain a better rebirth in the understanding of, of ancient India. But they're also qualities that we're said that we should imitate when we see them in our spiritual friends. So these particular four of faith, virtue, generosity and wisdom. Those four are themselves a set that appear in other suttas, and they're the qualities that we would seek out in spiritual friends. We should be trying to associate with folks who have these four qualities, for example. We should engage in discussions with such people. We should talk with them about practice, and when we see those qualities in them, we should emulate it, it's said in, in several suttas. So it doesn't mean you need to find somebody who's an expert in all four of those. I mean, that would be amazing. And some of us may know such, such folks. But if you have a friend who is, just happens to be a particularly generous person, you know, it's like that's just, they're just a giver. You know, there are people like that. Um, then when you see them acting in that way, cultivating yourself that same quality, use it as a reflection of, oh, you know, I could be more like them in, in this quality. Or maybe you know somebody who is particularly wise, you know, maybe they're not even a practitioner, but they're just, you know, they've had a, 
long, interesting life with many changes, and they're now in their elder years, and they're just so okay with everything. And that quality we can cultivate in ourselves. We can let ourselves resonate with that in them and emulate these good qualities. This is how um, these, these qualities become common wealth that is shared and that can be given without decreasing your own and that increases other people's without diminishing their own. It's such a non-zero sum kind of wealth. You know, money is pretty much, you know, if I have it and I give it away, then I don't have it anymore. That's very limited. All of these um, are things that uh, you give them away and they only grow in you. So they're, they're good all around. So then we get to the fifth, which I skipped over. It's actually the third in the list, but um, the fifth of these qualities named in the sutta called wealth is learning. And that one gets short shrift in the Dharma world. That's why I'm singling it out a bit here at the end, probably because at least some of us in the West are kind of in our heads a lot and maybe kind of intellectual sometimes about the Dharma. And so teachers point toward the more heart qualities and ones that get us out of our head. But learning actually is very important. And the Buddha emphasized the importance of learning a lot in his teachings. So here's what the sutta says this in particular. And what is the wealth of learning? Here, a noble disciple has learned much remembers what he has learned and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life. Such teachings as these, she has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated and penetrated well by view. Wow. That's a lot. Um, but it essentially says, you know, learn the teachings, learn something about them. Um, it's also interesting to me that in this list, studying the teachings has the same weight as, say, not killing or generosity. How can that be? And how can learning serve other people and society as well as the person who's learning and as well as the other four qualities? obviously do. So one way to interpret that is that putting in the effort to have a good knowledge of the teachings changes the mind in certain beneficial ways. This would be my understanding of why learning is such an important kind of wealth. So remember that back then, people would have had to physically go and hear the teacher. And also, uh, pay enough attention to retain the teachings well, because they didn't have the internet and they didn't have Dharma seed and, you know, books even, you know, they probably weren't literate. Many people weren't literate in that society. So it wasn't like there was a resource, an, a backup resource that we could go to. If you wanted teachings, you had to go get them and you had to remember them in some way. Now you could talk with your friends and find out what they remembered also. And that's, also good, but it's an, it's an active process, learning. In fact, the word for learning is sutta, that's S-U-T-A, and it, it's a past participle that literally means heard. It's what we heard, the things that have been heard. So 
um, it's an active process and doing that uh, helps align the mind uh, with the principles of the teachings in a sense. So we start to have what I would call a, a mind of Dharma that sees events and happenings and occurrences in our life in terms of the teachings. So this is beneficial both for us and for others because we are more likely then to respond in line with the Dharma. So we will, therefore, that's just the sort of the quality that supports making ourselves that model for others uh, that's pointed to in the suttas that say that we should um, that we should emulate these qualities in others. So learning supports the, the clarity and the integrity of the other four qualities of faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. And of course, we could also, if we're well learned in the teachings, we could become a resource for uh, giving counsel, if that's appropriate, or for inspiring others to study and practice also. Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, a wonderful scholar monk uh, who has contributed so much to our modern understanding of the teachings, he wrote an essay about how these five qualities named as the kinds of true wealth could be the basis for a Buddhist education system. He was actually advocating for that in Sri Lanka at the time. And so this underscores, I think, um, their importance in creating a healthy society. So he thought these five would be a good basis for training children uh, to become productive members of society. So they're important maybe for people of all ages and all life conditions, these kinds of real wealth. They would contribute to the, the wealth, the quality, the commonwealth of the society uh, that they're used to instill, you know, that was instilling them in people. So where else do these I'm excited about this list of five, by the way, and, and they actually appear in one other notable place in the suttas, which is that there are some practices that are um, called recollections. They're, they're, they're practices like meditation, but you don't meditate, um, you don't, you're not doing mindfulness meditation or concentration meditation, but you're doing recollective meditation where you're just sort of contemplating a subject, and there are several of them offered. Uh, and one of them is to contemplate effectively one's noble qualities. Uh, it's, it's framed a little differently, but these five are named as qualities that we would consider that um, the devas in this reflection, so that would be the, the gods, have these qualities, these five, and we reflect that we have them also. But I'll point back to what I said about faith, which is that we we sort of um, reflect on these as higher virtues or as things that are lofty that would inspire the mind. So we reflect that just as lofty beings would have faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, we too have some degree of those qualities, maybe more, maybe less, but we have some degree of all of them as practitioners. And if we sit and recollect that, the mind becomes, in the, in the sutta it says, the mind will become inspired by the dharma, it will gain joy in the dharma, and then it will get concentrated. So this is a means of um, actually bringing the mind to a state where it can, uh, can go into concentration. It's an interesting approach to getting there. So these five are chosen as the lofty qualities that we would think of in ourselves leading to concentration. 
So I would say, as I reflect on these five forms of real wealth or true wealth, that even in the midst of a global pandemic and an economic downturn and various kinds of social unrest, I can say for sure that these five have not diminished at all in me. I don't think they're any different than they were in March. So in fact, the Buddha says this yet again, in one other sutta that names these, he says to somebody, these are qualities, this is a kind of wealth that can't be taken away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.